Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Anthony Netzos. Anthony is the founder of SaaS Gurus, which helps SaaS CEOs and founders by giving them advanced finance and stakeholder ecosystems to get the numbers easily and enable rapid growth, all while saving cash. Anthony brings a unique mix of medical school training, Six Sigma black belt process expertise, and the financial skills of a CFO with two unicorn exits and numerous other startups, to his credit, to provide the world's most sought-after resource for B2B SaaS company financial strategy and operations. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Thank you, Megan. I really appreciate it. Yeah, today we'll be learning about you, but also about what makes software as a service so unique and what you've learned throughout your experience in helping these companies scale quickly and set themselves up for success. I'm looking forward to this discussion, so let's get started. Great. First, let's start with you. If you could share your story of of how it is that you got to where you are today. You know, it's funny because I did not follow by any means a traditional path to what I'm doing right now. I actually started off as a medical student at the age of 18 at a major university. And about three or four years into that program, decided I really did not want to be a doctor. Wow. Um, so it was, a, it was a pretty major life change. And, you know, there's a very practical implication is what do you do for a job? when you have a partial medical degree, right? And so there was this thing, you know, I'm I'm in Michigan, right? And everybody's making cars or car parts and manufacturing is all around. So I just gravitated to, you know, basically answered a job posting for what turned out to be was a logistics expert position and got into manufacturing. And it was pretty clear very early on that manufacturing processes, you know, very closely mimic in many ways the human body. And so the training was really pretty easy to get into there and say, oh, here's, here's what's broken. Let's fix that. And so I did that for, you know, a while. And that kind of dovetailed with the scientific training that I had. And then after that, what I I landed at that point um, because I'd already been taking accounting, infor- accounting courses on the side because I thought accounting was really kind of cool um, and a good way to understand the company along with the operations. When I got courted by what was then called an ERP implementation, a third-party implementation. So this was back when everybody thought in the late 1990s that at the year 2000, their code would explode and you know systems would shut down and airplanes yeah. would fall out of the sky. It was, you know, the big Y2K thing, right? which turned out to be a wet firecracker. But before that, nobody understood it was going to be a wet firecracker. And all of these companies with these legacy systems said, oh, we need ERP. So the ERP market was like pretty much anybody who frosted the glass got a job. But <clears throat> then I moved into there. But that, you know, that really just expanded what I was looking at because from the system of being just manufacturing, it's now involving engineering. It's now involving accounting and finance you know, procurement, supply chain, um, financial reporting, profit margins, it all ties together. That's what ERP did. And so I did that for a number of years with a company called TRW, um, which is a, you know, fairly well known actually in the aerospace industry as well as automotive. So from there, you know, here I am just, I just keep adding this science. But what I noticed was that the accounting and finance folks really knew 
more about the company than just about anybody else. So my next step then was to move into um, from that ERP experience was to actually take that experience and help a company scale. And this was my first opportunity. So I was hired in as a controller. Um, my first accounting job was a controller. I just want to, that was like, I didn't realize until later how shocking it was. My first accounting job as controller. I, thank God yeah. the prior controller had left a series of books on his shelf that said how to be a good controller. <laughs> so I spent my first three months not sleeping in a panic that I would screw something up as I rapidly learned how to become a controller. Which I think, you know, it's like, you want to talk about totally non-traditional ways to end up in finance and accounting. I think that one kind of is like a little unique. I went yeah. from medicine to manufacturing to IT to controller. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that is an amazing it's total job. sense, right? It's <laughs> like, yeah, of course. But it turned out well. And what it did was that, you know, I was able to take all that prior experience and say, you know, we had, they had hired me and not because of the fact that I had strong accounting skills. That was a chance they were taking. Um, but they were hiring me in because I had ERP. I knew manufacturing. I was in automotive. Um, I spoke Japanese at that point, a fairly fair good level of it, conversational at least. Um, not since then. It's surely very rusted. But And they had just been acquired by the Japanese. And they said, here's your 70,000 square foot new facility. We're at 5 million in revenue right now. We're going to 10x that in the next three years. We are, here are the contracts that are going to do it. Um, you get to control everything that doesn't operate a production machine. So you control all the, you know, the electrons. So I, and they said, you have three people. And when you're done and we're at 50 million, you get to have three people. You get, don't get to add any headcount to GNA. I'm like, oh, okay. So Sounds like Mission Impossible. It, but the thing is, the Japanese were very interesting in that the word controller to them did not have a capital C and had a small case C. And in their minds, there wasn't a single thing in the organization that did not have a financial impact, true. And therefore, the person who's in charge of making sure you're being as efficient as possible with your money, and the Japanese are very big on efficiency, as we know, and makes no difference no matter what it is, you need to get, you know, really good at this and really fast at it. So you can stick your nose into just about anywhere in the organization where you feel money is being wasted. Well, that's a pretty powerful remit. Um, and also in charge of all data. So I said, great, what's state of the art? Back then, state of the art was barcode scanning, right? And EDI, it was called Electronic Data Interchange, which was, you know, a wire-to-wire -wire transmittal of standard file formats for things like ordering materials. And so all your procurement and ordering was already automated. What you really needed to do was automate labor and materials. And that happened on the shop floor. So I got to basically buy whatever system I needed to make that as automated. In the end, we were able to do it. We were able to scale to 50 million in revenue. And I still had the same, you know, three people, myself included, me and two others, working in the back office, running all the finance and accounting. That was my first scale. That's amazing. So from there. The story goes that, all right, manufacturing automotive in Michigan is unfortunately a sinking ship. If I'm going to continue to stay gainfully employed, I need to get out of this industry. Or at least there's enough turmoil where, you know, in one case, I was literally fired from a job, you know, two days before Thanksgiving because they didn't have enough work for us. And it's like, well, that's really annoying. Thank you. Merry <laughs> Christmas. Um, 
know, that informed me from then on. I would never fire from that point on. I will never fire anybody <laughs> between, you know, around Thanksgiving to Christmas. It's just like, look, find a way to pay them through that. Then tell them at the end of the, after the beginning of the year, let's not ruin their holiday. Yeah. You know, really is what it comes down to. And frankly, most companies can afford that, um, to be honest. So um, realizing that, you know, manufacturing was probably, you know, not a good idea. And oh, by the way, accounting is fascinating. It's like the electron microscope of the company. You know, you get to really understand it. So, you know, again, building on that thank, thankful medical training all the way back in the beginning. And it's basically science training and applying it as you go forward builds a case for efficiency and how to really scale companies, I think. And so that scaling experience, though, was at that point, I was done. There wasn't, more, there wasn't any more challenge. So I said, the guys over in finance, those are the ones that are interesting because they're looking forward. They're planning out. They're looking at funding. They're, that's the money side of the business. Accounting is really you know, that. It's keeping score. It's looking at historical what's happened. Finance by its nature is forward. So I decided to do something that nobody in industry does very much because it's risky, which is take a sabbatical. And I said, I've had enough work for a while. I want to go back and learn something new. And so I skipped over to St. Andrews, Scotland. There's a university there that a certain prince attended. Um, I think he's in line to the throne or something. Um, anyway, this university happens to be a one or two train stops down for him where Adam Smith, who basically invented modern economic theory, lived. Um, so the University of St. Andrews has been around for 600 years. And I looked at it and said, you know, these guys probably forgot more about finance than anybody else out there since they were there at the beginning. And so that's where I picked up my finance degree. and came back to Michigan because that's where my family was. And that's when I got into the fractional space. So that's when being fractional CFO, fractional controller, because I came into these situations saying, how can I get the numbers out as efficiently as possible so that we can make decisions based on it, which is finance. And our entire, you know, that's pretty much where I am today, which is I, you know, I work with founders and I have folks that work with founders, especially in SaaS, especially if they're venture backed, um, PE or VC doesn't really matter. Primarily software, but, you know, we have a significant, you know, number of clients that are what I call recurring memberships, which is behaves the same way as SaaS. You know, call it MAS. I don't want to come up with a new term, but it's recurring revenue. Um, the principles are very similar, they're very same. The tech out there is constantly advancing and evolving to make things even ever more efficient. There are easy ways to integrate systems now that did not exist before because we're in the cloud. You know, things are not on-premise anymore. Things are in the cloud. So you can plug and play them a lot easier. Um, doesn't depend on your operating system anymore. It doesn't depend on where your hardware is located anymore. Those days are pretty much over. So staying abreast of all of that, that's been really fun for me. And that's what gets me up in the morning. It's like, okay, what new and interesting ways can we make ourselves you know, more efficient and more value to our clients? How did you come to specialize in, in SaaS? Well, it was a it was a dark and stormy night. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, well, actually, it was it was a it was a gloomy February, is what it was. When I was sitting in front of my computer, I think I was doing some business development or something. I was trying to find new clients. Um, when I got this email from what I thought was a headhunter, and it turned out to be the CFO of a local you know software company, he said, "Hey, we're looking for a manager of accounting." 
do you, I know you're in the space, you know, do you, you know, do you have a resource or do you know somebody? And so I said, well, I don't know about manager level stuff. I said, I don't know anybody at the time. He said, well, yeah, we're also looking for a director, a senior director of finance and accounting, you know, we really need to scale the company. And <laughs> so somehow the alarm bells went off in my head saying, this sounds interesting. I ended up getting that job. Um, so I was the senior director of finance and accounting at a company called Duo Security. And this was my second scale. So, and this was a SaaS company and they were venture backed and they're here in Ann Arbor. And so it was very easy, no commute, just basically a bike to work, which was great. So I felt like I was living in Silicon Valley without the sun, um, <laughs> which it was because Michigan is dark and gloomy in February. Yeah. So we, I'm from Ohio. In that, case, in that case, though, I did not have an empty 70,000 square foot factory in total control over all electrons that were not production related. I inherited a mess and had to make order out of it. And that's what that's pretty much what we did is we built the scaling using all those principles from before as best I could. Single point of data entry, prevention before detection, you know, all the Six Sigma and total quality management tools and everything else and scientific method to try and knit together a back office that would support a company which did in fact grow 10 times eight figure revenue to nine figure revenue in three and a half years. Um, and what is it about your background in ERP implementation that taught you how to scale? It was trial and error. Um, we were it, <laughs> a lot of mistakes, basically. I, I hate to say it because the first client that that happened on, it was a terrible experience for him. But because ERP was so new, and integrated so many different areas and systems. It was really unproven in many ways territory. SAP had been out there for a while, but they were like the behemoth and only, you know, major multinationals employed them, right? Or utilized them. You know, you start moving down into the mid-market, which is where a lot of these companies were. Um, you know, th this was entirely new to them. And so we made a lot of mistakes um, the first time out. That's why I said, if you frosted the glass, you got a job as an ERP consultant. Um, I happened to do more than frost the glass, so they made me manager, <laughs> right? <laughs> My, yeah, and it was like, okay, so we had no training material. We had no data migration maps. We had none of the pieces of information that we take for granted now in terms of how do we put together a major system or how do we bring one up live? Um, and so we had to develop them. And because I was this weird mix of, you know, medicine and manufacturing and finance and accounting, this was another one of those situations where I landed and they said, here, let's let Anthony do it. And so that's what we did. And so we developed the processes to make it as efficient as possible. It didn't always work. And you know, there were a couple of spectacular failures. But, you know, unfortunately, somebody's got to build the airplane first sometimes. And when it comes to these back office systems now, you know, there's a lot more standardization. There's a lot more availability. But back then, we were, you know, developing, you know, first techniques in some ways. Yeah, failures are always the best lessons in life. <laughs> Especially if there's somebody else's and not your own. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the best case scenario. Right. Um, so you're the founder of SaaS Guru. Can you tell us a little bit about that company and how it is that you came to start it up? So after the, you know, the, the duo security thing, then I jumped over to another Ann Arbor unicorn called Lamasoft and, you know, basically did for a shorter period of time there. I was, you know, I was really hankering to get back to the, you know, 
entrepreneur side of things of doing it myself and not being salaried. So moved back in, but it was very apparent that this, you know, knowledge of SaaS and how SaaS worked and, you know, all, you know, having built all the systems and standardized and also having a ringside seat at numerous rounds of investment with the CFO who, you know, was very open and sharing with all that information, which was kind of a deal I had with him. I said, look, I'll give up my client base and come work for you, but I really want to learn this particular aspect of it. And he was great. And, you know, that's what he did. He taught me. Um, and so that information said, look, SaaS is great. SaaS is, you know, it's fairly new. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on, you know, everything from AR to augmented reality, AI to augmented reality to, you know, health tech to fintech to, you know, just a, an array of interesting solutions. And VCs are interesting to deal with. It's a high risk environment. So there's a lot of change and it fits. It's what I like to do. So I like to solve you know, these problems, but like to permanently solve them so that in SaaS, we can say, look, if you come to us, we're pretty much going to give you our best knowledge on SaaS. That's what we specialize in. And all of our systems experience to set everything up so that you can scale if you want, you know, whatever level you're at right now, you can plug and play this stuff up to 100 million without, you know, having to, to redo anything. Um, and the numbers come to you, not you go chase them. And we get to talk about interesting stuff like client contracts and, you know, forward-looking financials and, you know, pre-money valuations for investment rounds and the stuff that is truly finance. It's more efficient for them because they're paying for, you know, CFO work that's actually CFO work and not accounting work. You know, everything up until the financial reports is pretty much accounting. So that we focus on making as automated as possible. Um, and continually to improve on that because, again, as I said, the the market out there for software solutions for accounting, you know, is is rampant. It's, and it's constantly evolving. And what makes SaaS unique? For me, SaaS is unique in that it's, you know, you're looking at a lot of leading edge technology. I'm a science fiction fanatic, um, have been since I was a little kid and, you know, read my first science fiction in second grade and I was hooked. Um, so for me, the, the stuff that's outward looking, the stuff that's on the expansion, you know, that forward line of expansion, you know, I can't go out to space, but I can at least do it on the, you know, the virtual world and say, you know, here's a really cool augmented reality app that gets kids who are, you know, just post-operative up and out of their beds so that they get out of the hospital, you know, sooner and healthier and use less pain meds. Isn't that a great app? Isn't that a great use for augmented reality? And it goes on from there. There's all sorts of, you know, really fascinating stuff going on out there. And I like being in the middle of it. And you operate with a do it with you model. So what what does that mean? What's do it with you? Well, so... We don't believe in pure outsourcing, right? I mean, a lot of this stuff... So who's going to run the system? All the numbers system in the background is, you know, we don't necessarily want it to be our people. We want it to be our clients' people. Um, sometimes there's an incumbent. Sometimes there's a controller, an assistant controller, or a good accounting manager. They just don't know SaaS. Or a CFO just doesn't know SaaS and needs somebody to say, okay, here's how you set that part up. Here's, here are the things that you need to consider. Um, so it's doing it with our clients because we'd prefer that, you know, if they have, they have somebody they already have that we, you know, we train them in how to do this and how to operate it. And it's pretty easy. You know, like I said, it's, it may look like rocket science on the outside, but once it's set up, it's, you know, it runs pretty well. And so it's easy for somebody to operate. 
And what are your proudest achievements in starting SaaS Gurus? I like to joke that we're the most loved CFOs in SaaS. Um, but we've had that comment come back to us in a couple of ways. Like um, recently, you know, we're actually in a board meeting and, you know, the CEO says, I love having numbers. <laughs> it's just like, you know, we, 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 I think my proudest achievement is delighting our clients, not just satisfying them, but like making them actually say, wow, this is great. You know, it's not, oh, thanks. Um, and too often in accounting and finance, it's the second answer that we hear, the second feedback. So for me, it's, you know, it, it's the, the really giving them that extra mile. You know, it's like say, okay, investor wants to see your financials as of the end of April. That's great. But you know what? Let's delight them and give them the end of May because May is, you know, done and we're, okay, it's only a few days into it. So going that, those little extra miles for the client, you know, that's the stuff that, you know, that's what makes me smile because they smile. Yeah. That's always a nice feeling. Yeah. So on your LinkedIn page, you state that you scale B2B SaaS companies by setting up a state-of-the-art finance and stakeholder ecosystem. So what does that mean to you? First of all, what is a stakeholder ecosystem? And secondly, what makes it state-of-the-art? So I need to talk to my marketing people because we don't want to use that clumsy phrasing anymore. (laughs) Because you're like everybody else is saying, what the on earth is the guy talking about? Finance and stakeholder ecosystem. It's like, okay, let's have our moment of geek. (laughs) So what I was trying to get at is, it was a comparison. I said, it's like a coral reef, right? You don't see the coral reef from the surface of the ocean, but it's there. And if it's not healthy, the ocean isn't healthy. So that was kind of my my science background coming forward to, to come up with an analogy. But that's what it is. A stakeholder in our minds is a customer, a vendor, an employee, an investor, you know, somebody who's got a contract or somebody who has a relationship to the company, right? And how you treat your employees and how you interact with your vendors and how you interact with your customers, in addition to all the numbers... You know, that goes all the way up into sales operations. It goes into HR operations. It goes into, you know, other areas of the organization where you can make everybody's lives easier. I mean, literally, you know, so we, that's what we look at is not just the finance and accounting side of things. We're also looking at the HR ops. We're also looking at sales ops and saying, look, from the point of first contact to the, you know, the invoice being collected, what does that step-by-step process look like? How do we set that up so there's a single point of data entry and everything is added to that record from then on so you don't have duplicate and triplicate on down through how do we set it so that errors don't happen in the first place so that we don't have to go looking for them? Um, you know, all those principles. But so that's, that's how we do it. And in your mind, what are the keys to rapid scaling? And... Where is it that most companies fall short when trying to scale quickly? I I think it's exactly that, the two basic principles, which is, you know, the the key to scaling is repeatability, right? Being able to do, I call it, it's, it's, in science, there's a term called, there's a, in math, I should say, there's a term called a logarithm. And a logarithm, you know, is, is something that doesn't go up in a straight line. It goes up in like a, you know, the term hockey stick, right? You've heard that hockey stick growth. What's a logarithmic scale? Um, so you're going from you know 10 transactions per day or 10 transactions per minute to 
100 transactions per minute or 1,000 transactions per second, right? So it's, it's a, how, does, how rapidly are you scaling? So in order to scale like that, even to get started at that, there are certain principles in the back office that are really critical. And one of them is enter your data once and preferably have somebody else do it so you don't have to. Um, and make sure that that becomes the source of truth from there forward. And all of your systems from you know, your quoting to your CRM to your finance, to your customer success, to your budgeting and financing and your financial reporting and your cash forecasting and all these systems related together, making sure that you know, they, they are all coming from that single, as much as possible, point of data entry. And when you enter it, you idiot-proof it. You know, I don't know if that's politically correct anymore to say that. So you foolproof it so that you can't put bad data in. And at that point, data becomes information because it's just programming and assembly from that point, getting the data in. It's that goes back to those first principles of accounting or first principles of computing, garbage in, garbage out. So, but what happens is too many times is especially startups is somebody says, look, we need an accounting system. Okay, great. Let's go get QuickBooks. All right. Um, we need a, uh, an HR system. All right, let's go grab Gusto. Um, you know, we, we, we got a lot of sales leads coming in. Well, let's grab HubSpot. Um, and so what's happening is you're grabbing tech and you're using it and you need it in the moment, but you're not setting it up so that it talks to each other. So what, instead of having a tech stack, you have a tech pile. And so principle number two is have a plan. So a single point of data entry is great, but you need to have a plan to say, look, we're going to start off with accounting. You know, we don't want to be re reproducing data. So how does the customer information get from the CRM, HubSpot, to accounting? You start asking some of those basic questions so that you start connecting these systems from the beginning. You don't let your tech pile grow into tech chaos. You have a tech stack that interrelates with itself. And like I said, there's a lot, there are a lot of easy ways to do that. Many of these software applications come with out-of-the-box connections. Your expense reporting integrates with QuickBooks, right? You know, it's simple stuff like that. Your banking transactions, all of those and your credit card transactions can be fed directly into your general ledger now. Why on earth would you want to do data entry? So it's, it's simple stuff and it's complicated stuff. But most of these systems, by virtue of being able to talk to each other, that's principle number two, which is have, have, a, have, a, have forethought. Don't just buy these systems and say, yeah, let's just drop it in. Because all you're doing is you're creating hard, you're creating barriers to scale later, and you also make everybody's jobs and lives easier from the beginning. So it's and it's not that expensive to put this stuff in right in the first place. It gets more expensive later on because you have cleanup. And what advice would you give to CFOs who have inherited a mess, who didn't have the luxury of foresight and being able to, <laughs> to start from ground zero? Um, so I'm reminded of. Somebody who came to me once and said, I've, I've lost my business records. This was in the day and age before we had stuff online um, in a fire. Here's what we have left and hands me, you know, a file box singed and smelling of deeply of smoke. <laughs> this was, you know, we had to reconstruct everything. So yeah, it messes. Um, you know, you, it goes back to at that point, how much cleanup at the transactional level you're going to have to do. Because when you think about it, everything in accounting is built from the transaction level up. 
and it flows through this vertebral column called the chart of accounts. And I like to think of that as our spinal column because it's exactly how it functions. Everything literally hangs off of our spinal column. Everything hangs off of the accounting system. All your financial reporting, your KPIs, your metrics, the information finance needs to make a decision. You know, executives need to make, you know, efficiency decisions. It all comes back to you. Do you have the accounting set up right? So first principles is you're going to have to get your arms around the transactional level data and how clean it is. Um, once it's clean, then the second thing is you're going to have to set up that chart of accounts in a structure that you know is going to give you the maximum information that you're going to need to operate the company on all those levels, from board reports to manager departmental reports, ultimately on up. It sounds complex, but it's not really that complex to set it up right. Because once it's set up right from that point, you can scale. It doesn't matter if you're running QuickBooks or NetSuite. Um, the chart of accounts just flows. And it makes those migrations easier later on because everything's already standardized up front. So to answer the question of how does that scale, you start from first principles. Get your transactional level data cleaned up um, and your chart of accounts. That's pretty much how we start. Every time we start a client, the first thing we have to do is go in and clean up the general ledger. We, I call it re-engineering the general ledger because we need to put a chart of accounts that makes sense for SaaS, that gets us our CACs, that gets us our R&D expenditures, that gets us our margins and our costs and everything else that we need um, in order to feed in. Um, and the historical data to give us trends over time and comparability so that we can go in front of investors and say, this is what happened. Um, and here's what we think is going to happen. And that's pretty much most every conversation you know I have around VC sooner or later is that and sooner or later there's going to be a financial projection based on some histories that they're going to want to take a look at it. And it needs to be in a language that they understand. Yeah, that's great advice. So as someone who's come up through the ranks uh, on a non-traditional path, how have you seen the CFO role evolve and, and where do you think it's heading? I've been watching it I guess you could say probably from the day when I got my CMA, because um, that's when I kind of started to think about finance and not accounting um, and decision-making. The role has gotten a lot more... There's probably two trends. One, I think finance used to be a lot more important in the room where big buys were the day and age, where large purchases of IT or production equipment, those kind of things, finance needs to be in the room because a lot of times it was figuring out pricing and margins and return on, you know, stuff like that. So it's mechanical. There wasn't as much involvement in strategic discussions. Um, I think that that evolution has happened. You've got to be, I think that's one. Number two is it's way more chief cook and bottle washer than I think it ever used to be. I handle, you know, now as a CFO, you know, especially with some of the clients, Handling HR matters, handling, you know, insurance and risk mitigation matters, handling, you know, legal matters, handling equity matters. Um, you know, it's really even sales ops. Okay. So it's, it's the ability to understand that the role is becoming not more strategic, but also more encompassing and, you know, broader in scope. Um, and being able to move and talk and understand in those different areas easily and, you know, be effective in those areas, that's experiential. Um, and so then it's just a matter of, you know, at that, that point individually, whether you've had that kind of exposure and if not, you know, where you need to go get it. And what do you see keeping most CFOs up at night these days? You know, I, I'll, I, all I can say is I'm not in people's heads, but I know what's in my head. 
Um, and it's, it's the advent of, um, you can call it AI or ML or whatever you want to call it, hyper automation. But, you know, there was a, a study done, I want to say back around 2000, early 2000s. It was either Oxford or Cambridge, some one of the UK universities. I can't remember off, but I, I distinctly remember it because that's when I was at the St. Andrews and it was topical then, which was they were looking at all these industries and looking at the rates of um, development and technological advancement and saying, making predictions as to which sectors of the economy would be automated out of existence by 2050 in terms of people doing them. And in the top 10 list was accounting. Finance was down, I want to say like 50th or something like that. It was pretty far down the list. So one, I was like, okay, that's a little bit reassuring if this is correct, but it made sense. And I see this and that's part of how we built SaaS gurus in a way. It was also based on this, you know, this insight that automation, accounting is subject to automation because it's very rules-based. It's very logic, very logical. So it's easy to see why companies are... It's not AI, but it's, you know, automation is increasing because it's easy to standardize stuff. So, you know, I think that that's... If it's something to keep you up at night, which is if my job is mostly in accounting and there's a lot of AI tools that are being developed out there to take what I do, say, as just AP or an expense reporting manager or, you know, somebody further on down on up to that controller level... Um, you know, is AI able to produce an actual versus budget report with comments? Probably at some point. Mm-hmm. I don't see why not. Um, you know, so I, would that keep you awake? Well, I guess some of that depends on how set you are in staying in accounting or how much you recognize that as a risk. Or, you know, I guess that's in a way I look at that as opportunity. I don't look upon it as something to be afraid of. I'd say at first I probably was. It's like, oh, gulp. My money is going to be based on accounting and it's going to be AI'd. You know, what am I, how am I setting myself up for the future for success? That, you know, that you could say kept me up at night. I think and from a practical day-to-day aspect, because of the client base that I work, work with, having enough cash to make sure that your payrolls are met, that can keep you up at night. That's a very human and real thing to live. Um, you know, if you're not going to, if you see a company that's you know running low on cash, um, or you have projections that are based on a certain sales volume and you're just not hitting them, and you have to start redoing the projections, and then suddenly you need cash sooner than you thought, those are very practical day-to-day things that can you know keep you up at night if you let it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with your comment about uh, automating and accounting and opportunities coming from that. I think a lot of people are afraid, but um, at the end of the day, it's uh, in many ways, it's getting rid of the transactional components that nobody really wants to do anyway. Exactly. And, and it's that kind of stuff that you're right. It's, it's autumn. And then I think that leads back to that article. It's like, that is an accounting function. And their, their, their contention was half of all American jobs would be automated out of existence by 2050 from you know, that starting point in 2000. It's like, well, that's a fairly aggressive turnover rate, but it's not that surprising. Um, as a matter of fact, I expect it probably will be faster. Um, I think AI is going to be a snowball type of thing that it's like once you build one of them, then you know, others. So you know, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of complexity around it. I think there's a lot of hype that of what it can do. I think, you know, we're still in early days, but, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I look back on, you know, from when I started 
accounting, you know, from that very first accounting class that I took in, you know, graduate school way back um, to now and realize that I'm living in the science fiction that I used to read about. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. You know, I mean, it's just bluntly. I'm, you know, we have community, okay, they're not pinned to our chest and you don't touch it and say Kirk to Enterprise, but that cell phone you're carrying, you can give, reach anybody on the planet anywhere at any time of day now, pretty much. You know, that's, and it, it's not, you know, Spock would ask the computer a question and the computer would say, you know, 24 hours or whatever that mechanical voice. Well, now it's 24 milliseconds. Thank you, Google. Um, you know, we're living in it, it, the way I look at it. I'm living in the age of science fiction I used to read about. And, you know, and I think it's, it sneaks up on you. You don't realize it. Well, that's, that's what I don't want to have happen to people who are relying on a certain industry that's, you know, under particular, you know, threat, if you will, of automation. You know, I watched it happen in manufacturing. When I first started at that scaling plant, the one that we had, you know, scaled from five to 50 million, the ratio of labor as a percentage of our cost of sales dropped dramatically during that scaling period. We didn't add more people to do that. We added more machines to do what people used to do. It's a scary thought to think like 50% of jobs are going to be automated. Like what what are people going to do? But I, I feel like, you know, as those jobs disappear, new jobs will be created that we can't even imagine today. So, well, and I think COVID has helped us with that, strangely enough, because, um, you know, by dispersing the workforce so that you're not, you don't have to go to a particular area to work in that industry anymore. Um, you know, in some cases, yes, you know, things that involve direct human contact, that's unfortunate, you know, that's not unfortunate. That's great. Okay. That's not going to change. But it also, unfortunately, um, you know, puts the people who have to deliver it into a, you know, if you're going to stay in this industry, you're going to have to work with this. But for people who are in the information knowledge industry, you know, I can work with a client in the UK. I can work with a client in China. I can work, you know, anywhere in the world. <laughs> time, time zones allowing, of course, and crazy hours for phone calls and Zoom calls. But, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's truly become a global workforce and COVID accelerated that. And so your ability to branch out and explore and do, do, do new and different things other than what you're doing is at your fingertips. Um, so I think there's, you know, you can, you can face the threat one of two ways. You know, I'll go back to say, I think everything I needed to know in business, I learned in a science fiction book in Dune, the book Dune, which is the movie that just famously came out, yeah. is, you know, the, the, um, the mantra against fear. Fear is the mind killer. Um, you know, and it's, you can be paralyzed by fear in terms of, oh, that, oh crap, that's coming my way. Or you can say, look, I need to figure out a way to deal with that and start looking outside of, you know, what you're doing. Um, I saw that coming a long time ago, um, you know, for any industry, you know, being science fiction, right? I grew up in, there was one book called The Humanoid Touch, which was scary at the time and still is kind of scary in its own right, which is, AI had so taken over everything that humans had nothing to do. They weren't, you know, they couldn't play music better than the AIs because they played it perfectly. And they couldn't drive cars better than the AIs because they did it perfectly. And they couldn't make parts better. You know, it was all like there was nothing for humans to do because the AIs were all doing it perfectly. And, you know, that's an extreme example taken, you know, you know, that, that's what science fiction does. It takes a premise and takes it to an extreme. But thinking about that, it was, you know, that was an early book 
And I was like, oh, gulp, man, I better make sure that doesn't happen to me. Um, So I think having a science fiction mindset (laughs) is maybe a little helpful if you're in accounting um, because you're living in a world now that was science fiction not more than 20 or 30 years ago. And it's only going to continue. It's not going to slow down. Um, I have one one last question for you. I saw in your profile that you are a certified yoga instructor. So just wondering what inspired that and, and what yoga does for you personally. Um, what inspired that was a realization that um, my wife and I had both become couch potatoes um, and we needed to do something other than, you know, our work. And, you know, this was... I I had been pretty much home based for a you know a long better amount of twenty years, but my you know my wife wasn't and was you know working. But anyway, we we decided that one Christmas we wanted to improve our physical well being, and so I wanted to do something that both of us could do that neither one of us had done before. And so she said, "Oh, okay. What about this?" And she pointed out to yoga. And the first thing that came to my mind was living on granola and water for the rest of my life. And I'm like, "Well, I don't want that." He said, well, that's not what it is. And of course, that's not what it is. You're laughing. So we went to this yoga studio and it was rather unique because it had ropes anchored in the ceiling to help you with the poses and also to introduce poses that apparently, and I didn't know this at the time. I was like, this was my first yoga experience. So what do I know from Adam's off ox, right? It's like, this is what yoga is. Cool, it has ropes. Um, But it allows you to use your um, climbing muscles. And so that was a unique yoga style that we just fell in love with. And it really helped us, you know, physically and well as well as mentally. I mean, yoga is as much an, a mental and emotional practice as it is a physical one. That's what yoga is, is union of mind, body, and spirit. Um, and so we decided to become instructors. And so we went through the instructor training and became instructors. And I taught for many years um, and loved it and still do practice it. Um, covid pretty much killed our studio. You kind of need the ropes in the ceiling. That's part of the style. And most people don't really have ropes anchored in their ceiling at home. So it was kind of, you know, a lot of the really cool stuff that we could do, you know, was not available to us. And so um, it's taught remotely now. One of the teachers continues to do it. I do it, you know, on my own. Uh, That's something that I don't think I'll ever stop doing. Um, It's great to wake up early in the morning and get yourself energized with that. And then you're off and running for the day. So um, I think that's the other thing that COVID has allowed us to do is that I don't have to go to the studio to do my yoga. I can do it at home like in a 10-minute break while I'm working. And it helps my productivity. So I think we're seeing the beginning of another science fiction revolution where, you know, it's it's work around the clock because it's a 24-hour globe and a 24-hour workforce. And people are doing more what they enjoy um, and less what they have to. That's that's my hope anyway. Yeah, that's very interesting. I can't wait to see where we are five years from now and and everything that's come between now and then. Yep. Anthony, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I've really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your experiences and and all the resulting insights. And I wish you all the best. And to all of our listeners, please tune in next week. And until then, take care. 
If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.